Romans chapter 4. We're going to be looking at 19 down through verse 17 this evening. First four verses, remember, he started to use as an illustration Abraham and dealing and using Abraham as an illustration for what he has been laying the foundation for, and that is justification by faith alone. So he's in the middle still of using Abraham as his example and dealing with the fact that uh, justification, that Christ's righteousness is imputed unto the sinner upon faith, and and uh, that the Lord will not impute sin unto that person. So verse 9 says this, cometh, cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also, Jew and Gentile. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he that might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath, for, there is, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not, on, uh, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we certainly do love you. We thank you for your word. I ask your blessing upon the service tonight. Lord, please control what I say and how I say it. Lord, I, again, I pray that it would be pleasing unto you, that you would use it to strengthen us, to draw us closer to you, to teach us your word, to meet the needs that are here. I do pray if there's anyone here who has never truly been converted, I pray for that conviction and that drawing that you would work, Lord. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Again, Paul has been laying the groundwork and the framework for the doctrine of justification, how we are justified by faith alone. And last week, getting into this, he just used a perfect illustration with Abraham. The entire chapter is using Abraham as an illustration and uh, to show that justification is by faith alone. That truly, he's using the greatest man of the Old Testament who received his righteousness, his salvation by faith alone, uh, through grace alone, that any other, any other man, that means all of us, that is the only way any of us could possibly come to, come to God. If that was uh, what was used to save Abraham, um, I mean, if there is no salvation for Abraham by law-keeping, it is also impossible for all other men. And this is what Paul is trying to teach us, what he is trying to demonstrate to us, and look at, look at Romans, back up to Romans chapter 3. Here, here he was coming up to his conclusion about justification by faith alone. He said this in verse 21. 
But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all, upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Those verses are the summation of the groundwork that He had been laying. Now He was pulling out an illustration just to stress, to stress that salvation is received by faith and grace alone. You can add nothing to it, even though multitudes do all the time. The person who places their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is declared righteous by God. Look at the very last few words of our text. It, well, I'm, I'll read the whole verse, verse 17. As it is written... I have made thee a father of many nations, referring back to Abraham, what would come as a result when the promise was given in the Abrahamic covenant, and I'll, I'll get into that in just a few minutes. Before him, whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. That's dealing with our justification and the righteousness that we receive. That because of what Christ did on the cross, God can call this, though it be not as though it is. God can call you righteous, though you be not, but it is, it is, I cannot talk tonight. I definitely should have had coffee before this service. But he makes it as if it is true. And that is possible through what Christ did. The truth is, all religions seek to provide an answer for justification. They seek to provide a way for, for those who follow to be right with the Creator, with the Deity. Satan has deceived and he has beguiled people along these lines for 6,000 years. He blinds people, especially when it comes down to the truth of this doctrine of justification by faith alone. Which is the only answer. It is the only answer that even makes sense before a holy, righteous, and just God. The truth is there can be no other answer. Those of you who are wondering, how do you know Christianity is true? This is it. It's the only one with a possible answer that makes any sense at all. That, that, that forms any intelligent sequence of how mankind can possibly stand just before a holy and a righteous and a perfect God. Let's take Hinduism, for example. In Hinduism, let me give us one of their beliefs. The river. We've all probably seen the videos and pictures of, of the river. Uh, what's it pronounced? Uh, Ganga? What is it? Somebody? I don't. Is it really pronounced with that that way? Ganges? Ganges? The Ganges River. They literally believe that river is the body of the goddess. I guess we would pronounce Ganges. Then that's why I was trying to put a more effeminate twist to it. This fil and it is a filthy river. If you've seen the videos, it's just nasty. This filthy river, they believe, is actually a deity. Let's look into their writings of what they say about this river. Because it ties in how man is justified. This is in their books, the Mahabharat. 
It says, the pilgrim who bathes at this place wins absolution for his whole family, and even if he has perpetuated a hundred crimes, he is redeemed the moment he touches the Ganges, whose waters wash away his sins. Now, along the riverbank, they set up shacks for shaving. This is where the very devout, they will, they will, they will completely shave themselves, all hair, they will then take all that hair and dump it into that filthy river because, let's quote from one of their sources again, here's why. For every hair thus thrown in, you are promised a million years residence in heaven. It's also very satanic because another ritual associated with this river is it encourages suicide. There's a festival that takes place with it, that, that the main one, and let me give a quote what to do at this festival. Whosoever wishes to be born in heaven ought to fast down to a grain of rice and then drown himself in these waters. Isn't it amazing how satanic religions encourage suicide? I mean, really it is. It's amazing how, 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 how the devil can use a form of religion and blind people. Just like, I just still can't get the events out of the last week in my mind, with those shouting, God is great, while they're kidnapping, raping, and murdering. Incredible. Pure evil. Paul, of course, coming out of Judaism himself, a Pharisee of the Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, I mean, on a path to success within his religion, within Judaism. He believed it with all his heart. He, he was a man that was steeped in Judaism, that now understands that it was all about rituals, it was all about rules. It was not salvation by grace, although, as Paul's going to make the case today, we're going to see, it started off as salvation by grace through faith. But they left it. Within Judaism, there are all kinds of personal acts, both moral and ceremonial, by which they could achieve a measure of salvation, a measure of justification. People were looking outside of faith and not to faith for the answer. I'm going to give you an example of this, of a great king who a rival was produced, and it goes with the same lines we're looking at with what Abraham did. Look at 2 Kings chapter 18. Two verses I want you to see here when a revival hits. Look at verse 4 and 5. This is Hezekiah. Look at verse 4. He removed the high places and break the images and cut down the, uh, the groves and break in pieces. Get this. This is what I want to drive at. And break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it. And he called it Nehushtan. Now look at verse 5. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel. Pretty much a standalone statement right there. So that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. Know what he lived by? Faith. 
What he recognized in the nation, he even recognized that they, they, that they that took that brass and serpent that was made going back to the Old Testament in the wilderness, that when they were bitten by the serpents, you know, look and live. And they were worshipping it. They saw that and they were worshipping that, burning incense unto it. But we don't have any religions today that do anything like that, do we? We're going to look at Catholicism here in just a few minutes. But Hezekiah, just like Abraham, was just about faith. Not about rituals. Not about ceremony. But in Israel's day, they took the symbol of something and made it the point of attention, even giving it effectual powers. So in our text back in Romans chapter 4, Paul deals with two aspects along these lines and uses Abraham still as the illustration. He will show that justification is not by rights, number one, and number two, it is not by rules, which multitudes believe. Verse 9 through 12, number one, justification, not by rituals. He said this, Cometh this blessedness, the justification being made righteous, upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness, which was the argument he just made earlier in the text. He described how it looked in chapter 3 leading up to it. And now he says, okay, so uh, uh, um, what about, how does all this come about? How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or uncircumcision? He answers the question immediately. Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet, being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, when he had, uh, which he had been yet uncircumcised. He is going to completely destroy a Jewish argument, which, honestly, if you would just get these verses down, you would have no choice but to leave Catholicism. Or any group that adds ritual into salvation. Paul is destroying it. Paul understood by the argument he was making that his Jewish counterparts that were lost, they would be thinking, well, Abraham, if Abraham was justified by his faith alone, why did God command him and his descendants to be circumcised? Because they attributed circumcision to being righteous, that being the key to salvation. They had strong beliefs about it. They believe that circumcision of all the rites, of all the rituals they did, was the most important. It was the means God made them righteous. Let me quote from some of their sources. Again, from the book of Jubilees. Let me read from there. The law of circumcision is for all generations forever. And there is no circumcision of the time and no passing over one day out of the eight days, for it is an eternal ordinance ordained and written on the heavenly uh, tables. And every one that is born, the flesh of whose foreskin is not circumcised on the eighth day, belongs to the children 
belongs not to the children of the covenant which the Lord made with Abraham, for he belongs to the children of destruction. Nor is there moreover any sign on him that he is the Lord's, but he is destined to be destroyed and slain from the earth and to be rooted out of the earth, for he has broken of the covenant of the Lord our God. So absolute is circumcision as a mark of God's favor that if an Israelite has practiced idolatry, his circumcision must first be removed before he can go down to Gehenna. <clears throat> Excuse me, get something to drink. <clears throat> the Jews taught circumcision was what gained you salvation. I mean, keep in mind, before his conversion, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul believed. <clears throat> so the teaching was that Abraham was circumcised. And since this is true, he therefore set the standard that this is how salvation works. He taught it. He understood that's what they believed, but he's getting ready to tear it apart. Remember, he even had to deal with this, especially in the churches in Galatia from his first missionary journey, because the Judaizers hit there first, letting them know, those who had made a profession of faith, you're not saved yet because you haven't been circumcised. Because that was so ingrained in them. There are many today who hold to rituals, believing they lead to salvation. One of the most obvious churches that uses rituals as a means of salvation is the Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church has ceremonies and rites that are called sacraments. Let me read their definition of a sacrament. This is a Catholic theology. A sacrament is a thing perceptible to the senses which on the ground of divine institution possesses the power both of effecting and signifying uh, sanctify, uh, to sanctify and righteousness. In other words, it justifies. It's something that gives righteousness. Here are some quotes from several different sources of Catholic theology. I'm going to read several of them. The sacraments confer grace immediately without the mediation of faith. All the sacraments in the New Testament confer sanctifying grace on the receivers. Sacramental rites confer regeneration, forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, and eternal life. Another quote. For, this, for the dispensing of this grace, it is necessary that the minister accomplish the sacramental sign in the proper manner. If the priest doesn't do it right, it doesn't count. Another quote. Baptism confers the grace of justification. From the Council of Trent, the section on the decree of original sin. If anyone denies that by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is conferred in infant baptism, the guilt of the original sin is forgiven, or even asserts that the whole of that which has the true and proper nature of sin is not taken away, let him be damned. Anathema. Damnation is pronounced on anyone who denies that grace, salvation, grace, forgiveness of sin is not conferred in infant baptism. It's a paradox, even their statement. This is how grace is given. By our right. This ritual that we're going to do. Which is nowhere in Scripture. 
You don't find one infant baptism in Scripture, not one. And they try to get around that. I was Catholic. They love, and I covered this already when we went through the conversion of the jailer in Acts chapter 16. That's one of their go-to texts. As well as the sprinkling of the blood. I mean, it's just stretching. It, it's, not, it's just abusing. It's not stretching. It's abusing the Word of God for manipulation to try and somehow justify a doctrine that was established by man going back to the 3rd and 4th century. That they don't want to let go of and admit that it's wrong. Let me read another quote here. For if any of these to be true, well, let me go to this one. Baptism is necessary for all men without exception for salvation. Crazy. And, of course, the infant baptism ties into the original sin, and they go into the Acts chapter 16 to try and use that to justify infant baptism because it says the jailer and his family. So, they just presume into the text that there's babies involved and that they were baptized. But we've already demonstrated, one, it never says there's an infant involved, never, nor does it say that an infant is baptized. There is, no, there is no creation, there is no one single verse that comes close to hinting that. The jailer, by the way, would have been a man, probably retired military, well-established, with grown children and grandchildren, no infants based on position that he held. Let alone verses like 1 Corinthians 1.17, where the Apostle Paul, because of the dispute that the, 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 the disputes taking place and the pride taking place in the church of Corinth, because of who they were baptized after, whether it was Apollos, whether it was Paul, whether it was Christ. And he, he says, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He separated it. So, much like Judaism did with circumcision, we see that taking place in Christianity with baptism. And it certainly just isn't the Catholic Church that, that uh, um, holds to that doctrine. There are multitudes that hold to that doctrine within Christianity. But Paul is going to tear this apart. He does it simply by asking a simple question. When was Abraham circumcised? That's what he does. That's basically what he does. Just, when was he circumcised? And so, and he lets him know, you know, was it before or after he was made righteous by God? And of course the answer is, he was made righteous by God, justified by God, well, well before he was ever circumcised. We know that Abraham was circumcised at 99 years of age. We know 14 years prior to that is when Ishmael was born. And we know that the, the, the scripture portion where he was justified, made righteous by God because the faith happens before Ishmael was born. So, it was at least 14 years, but probably closer to 30 years prior to circumcision when Abraham stood justified before God. That's Paul's whole point. He said, listen, Abraham, our father, one of the most righteous men, the men that we hold to, he says, listen, when was he circumcised? 
before or after God declared him righteous? By faith. And of course, it was well, well before that God first declared him righteous, well before he was circumcised. So the question is then, well, then why did God give it? Verse 11, Paul answers that. He says, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet been uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. He says, here's why God gave you this circumcision, never imputed righteousness, faith imputed righteousness. This was simply the sign. This represented it. And, and it, it fits perfectly with what God was doing, because it's dealing with the procreation of man, the very thing that passes the seed. You say, so circumcision is a sign. Let me ask you a simple question. What does a sign do? It points you to something. Like, you're on the highway. You're coming in from Valley. You see the sign. You're coming up on Boniface, J. Bear Gate. You don't stop at the sign and say, I'm here. We're done. No, it points to where you need to go. Do you know what that circumcision was a sign of? Because we have the Abraham covenant that I'm going to cover in a minute. That was given. It's pointing to it. To a man who had righteousness imputed to him by faith. That's, that's what it's pointing to. was a sign. That's what it was. Much like even baptism points to faith. It points to the sinner's need to be identified with Christ in death, burial, and resurrection. It points to the faith that we have. That this is what saves us. That I have placed my faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a sign of what has taken place. It is a sign to point to others. This is what you, need to, what you need to turn to. What the Lord Jesus Christ did for you. Communion. It is not effectual in administering grace uh, as far as righteousness and justification. No, it is a sign uh, of the suffering, the death of Jesus Christ, of what our faith is in. They are not effectual. They are symbolic. Just like circumcision was. Number, now he has shown it's not by rules. He says, listen, it's, it, it, it's not by our religious rights. That's not how justification comes. He says, I know that's what you all are believing that it comes by, but that's not true. Look at Abraham. He was justified by God well before he was ever circumcised. He's getting ready to actually make him really mad. Is what he's getting ready. And it's a great point he's going to make. I'm going to get ahead of it because it's just so neat. He's going to say he's basically this. He says, let me sum it up. He's basically, now how the Jews always said that the Gentiles need to turn to Judaism in their circumcision. The argument he's getting ready to make with what he just said and where he's going is this. Is that the truth is, you Jews need to turn to, a, a, to the Gentiles and their uncircumcision by faith alone. Because Abraham, by definition would be a Gentile when God made him righteous. Coming out of a pagan land, uncircumcised. 
Gentile. And God made him righteous because of faith. So let's turn, but it's not by rules. Let's read these next set of verses. For the promise that he should be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So he's covered circumcision. Now he's going to the law. And say, by the way, it's not the law. It's not your rules either. For if they, which were of the law of the heirs, faith is made void. And the promise made of none effect. The promise that was given to Abraham of this justification by faith alone. Because the law worketh wrath. For where there no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed. Not to only that which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, giveth life. And I love this line. And calleth those things which be not as though they were. That's dealing with our righteousness. God making us righteous. So Paul now shows that the law doesn't justify either. We have the promise that is given through the Abrahamic covenant. This promise is not fulfilled, Paul's saying. The promise that was given in Abraham somehow through his seed being a blessing to all the earth, all the world. He said, that doesn't come through the law. The promise wasn't fulfilled by following any law. Abraham was justified not by anything he did, not by any ritual, not by any law-keeping. He was justified because he believed the promise of God. He believed the promise of God, that God, and of course God justifies those ungodly who come to him by faith. He's saying, Abraham believed that. The promise is given in the Abrahamic covenant. There were three main parts to it. Number one was what the war is all about right now, the promise of land, Israel's land. That was part of this covenant. The Lord would give them this ground. The second part is God would make of them, of his literal seed, a great nation, as stars of the sky and, and sand of the sea. The third part of the promise was this that all the families in the earth would be blessed. The promise of a Redeemer through His seed would come. This promise is what Abraham... He didn't have a whole lot of knowledge. I don't think Abraham understood the cross or any of that. But he knew because of that covenant. And, and there's a verse to prove it too, by the way, that a Redeemer was coming. And when he had that, when he made that decision to believe God... Righteousness was imputed. He was declared righteous by God even though he wasn't because of his faith. Because of his faith. You say, how do we know what Abraham believed within that promise? John chapter 8. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Saying Abraham knew a day is coming. What day? The Messiah's. The Redeemer was coming. He understood that's what God meant by that. This promise, by the way, 
that was given to Abraham is four to five, going on 500 years before the law ever existed. Before it ever existed. So Paul's saying, listen, you're wrong. He's he's saying justification before God was never about any rite or ritual. It was never about uh, um, the law. As he goes on to say, if if this inheritance, if, if this promise was given by law, then the promise is void. And of course, that's not going to make no sense because nobody could follow the law. Abraham was in no way justified by the law, as Paul's point. Nor does the Bible anywhere teach as they present it that well, he was justified in anticipation of the law. It never says that. It says that's not true. He was justified when he believed God. So why then the law? Verse 15. Because the law worketh wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. It's the law what, what, what condemns us. It's the law that shows us guilty. It's the law which makes it clear to us we need salvation. We are wretched sinners. It wasn't never to save. Here's another aspect. Think about this. How the law has nothing to do with saving. Look at Romans, we're going to get there, but Romans chapter 7 is an amazing chapter. Let's jump to it for just a second here tonight. Here's another aspect of the law. I'm going to give this statement first, then we're going to read this, all right? And and then I'm going to have to support it, because you're not going to believe it when I first say it, but it's here. The law encourages you to sin. Now read. Verse 7 of chapter 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taken occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taken occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. And he goes on. In other words, it's like this. What he's saying, it's true in the lives of our children. For those of you who are parents, it's true in your own life. How, how often true is it that when your child finds out he can't do that, something stirs in him to make him want to do that? We're without the knowledge of it many times. There was no knowledge of it. Are you following what I'm saying? Because of our rebellious, wicked heart. It's as if when man says, oh, so that's God's. Hmm, well, why can't I do that? Didn't the devil use that with Eve? So encourage might be the wrong thing. Word for it. But nonetheless, it stirs up in rebellious man. That desire to be rebellious. And then his conclusion, which I referred to several times here in verse 16 and 17. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace. Sort of the conclusion of it. That this act of of being Christ's righteousness imputed unto you, and then being in a place, now get this, being in a place that once that takes place, God will no longer impute sin unto you. 
He said it takes place because of one thing. Faith. And it is God's grace that allows it to be by faith. What what put the holy, righteous, perfect God in a place where this could be remotely possible is because He became a man to satisfy two things. Holiness and justice. It was never the law. It's never some ritual. That's why you hear me say all the time, it's not just saying the words and poof, you're saved. It's repentance and faith. And yes, when a person then calls on the Lord with that, salvation is there. It's faith. It's faith. If you get a person to pray a prayer, yet he's not actually at all interested in placing faith in God, seeing his condition, how much he needs him. There is no salvation. Salvation is not on the basis of trying. It's on the basis of trusting. So ironically here, Paul's driving at telling the circumcised Jews, you don't need to be telling these Gentiles to come to your faith. Let's go back to Abraham. You need to remember Abraham when he was yet a Gentile, uncircumcised, coming out of an idolatrous land. How was he justified? Well before he was circumcised. The answer was simple, because the Genesis 15 tells him he was justified by faith. That was it. Nothing else. No law, nothing else. God declared him righteous. Remember what it means. It's a legal, judicial term. Declared righteous. That when Abraham believed God, that, that imputation took place of righteousness. It's the same today. We are saved by grace through faith. With heads bowed and eyes closed. Now let me ask this. Is there anyone here that says, Pastor McGovern, I am not certain about my own salvation. I don't know if there's ever been a time when I simply placed my faith alone in Christ like you're talking about. Listen, apart from that, there is no salvation. It is by faith and grace alone. You cannot add anything to it. Is there anyone who say, Pastor, please pray for me. I am not certain that I am saved. I am not certain that heaven is my home. Would you please pray for me? If that is you, would you raise your hand for me where I could see it? Anybody here like that? I see some small children. If you did put your hand up, I missed it. I would need you to do it again for me. All right, Christian. If you need to come and pray here this evening, you come and pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you bless this invitation, Lord. I pray that you work in our hearts. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Let's turn to page 340. And if you need to come and pray, you come and pray.